Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. We are back, baby. After a nice holiday respite, Pop and Lock has returned to break down all of your favorite media with today's brightest minds. Today on the show, we're talking national treasure and ask is it a 21st century classic or a time wasting conspiracy crock? Here to answer that and more are my two guests. Deputy Managing Editor at Reason, our good friend Natalie Dowzicki. I'm back. And returning guest and now Cato White, Research Fellow on Technology Policy, Jennifer Huddleston. Jennifer, good to have you back on the show. Hey, great to be back with you guys. First of all, I think the thing that makes this film, and I think most people would agree, is not the story it's not the subject matter. Those are all great and they're fun and we'll get to those. But it's it's the lead. It's Nicolas Cage. This movie would not be what it is without his performance and his gravitas, his, his je ne sais quoi, really. Because I think – I don't think anybody's doing it like he does these days. So what do we think of Nick Cage's character, Benjamin Franklin Gates? Uh, is he – a likable character and is he likable because he's Nick Cage or is he likable because of something he does and and I think this gets further to the question of is what he does throughout the National Treasure franchise really justifiable because he does uh, a lot of uh, I wouldn't say nefarious but quite illegal things <laughs> <laughs> I think so I'm going to answer the first part. So I more recently I was thinking to myself, like, I don't necessarily understand the obsession with Nick Cage. Like people are always talking about him. Like he has like a very loyal, I feel like very loyal and very niche fan base. But I do think people point to National Treasure as one of the movies that like kind of defined who Nick Cage was as an actor. Like he's like acutely aware that this is like a non-serious film, but he also like totally buys into the fact that like he's gonna like go full-on conspiracy theory and like it's believable um not so much to the point where it's like okay like this is like there's still like comedy and other part elements of his personality that come through here so it's not like overly serious um but i definitely think national treasure was kind of like a turning point in um nick cage's career uh so to speak and like i mean that's kind of how, when I think of Nick Cage, I think of National Treasure. That's like my like indicator movie for him. But I also think part of it too is that he just like plays this role so well. Um, and it's a little on the nose. His name is a little on the nose. Um, just because this is a movie about the founding fathers and his, his name is Benjamin Franklin Gates. Um, but like again, that's the movie like coming kind of coming back to itself. It's like not so serious. Um, but I think Nick Cage does a great job in this film. Well, and I think some of that, you know, we we laugh about the movie being a little on the nose is you've got to remember this was a Disney produced movie. This is intended to be a family movie. And so while you want to have enough fun for the adults, you also want something that your 10 year old isn't going to have a, a super hard time following or understanding, you know, kind of a, a kiddie version of the Da Vinci Code in, in some ways. And I do think it's interesting, though, if we if we think about the leads in those two movies, you have Nicolas Cage, who, as Natalie said, you know, this is kind of the character that 
He's become known for playing on screen even beyond the National Treasure franchise itself. And then in The Da Vinci Code, you have Tom Hanks, who has, is one of those actors who just completely transforms himself every single role or, or every so many years where there are a wide range of movies that could be thought of as Tom Hanks movies. And then you have other character actors or other actors like Nicolas Cage, where like, if you tell me it's a Nicolas Cage movie, I feel like I know what I'm getting when I go into it. Yeah, I would I would 100% agree with that. <laughs> it's true. And it's really interesting, too. And we'll talk about I really want to talk about this movie's relationship to the Da Vinci Code at, at one point, too, because I think there's a lot to, to pull apart there. But the Tom Hanks, Nicolas Cage sort of. Uh, spectrum that you could kind of put these two actors on is really interesting because also when you think about characters, you know, Tom Hanks, his reputation is he's America's dad. He's the nicest actor out there. Like who could ever hate Tom Hanks? He's supposed to be like the nicest guy ever. Whereas Nick Cage is this, he's not rude, but he's this like kooky kind of outsider who's like now he's doing all these projects of like whatever he wants but they're all totally weird and different whereas tom hanks has kind of found his niche in his later years uh and is kind of there's a specific tone to the movies that he's going for and so they both exist within their own type of oeuvre but they're totally different from each other but yet they still at this point in time, somehow managed to land in these two very conspiracy-laden films um, that are that are so interesting. But from the perspective of the characters, you know, Robert Langdon in The Da Vinci Code is uh, – I don't know. I would say kind of bland. Like he's he's kind of interesting, but he – you know, he's not too crazy. Um Whereas, whereas Benjamin Franklin Gates starts at a similar point, you know, he's just like the, the average guy who's, you know, he's, he's studied a lot and he's on like, he's on a treasure hunt with Boromir from Lord of the Rings at the very beginning. <laughs> and he, you know, he's, he's solving puzzles and trying to figure stuff out. And then by the end of the second movie, especially, he's Indiana Jones. This yeah. he's you know, <laughs> leaping through tombs and doing all of these stunts. But he's also, and let me know if you agree with this, not that likable on paper. Like if if you if this were played by anyone else, it would not be good because you'd be like, this guy is kind of a jerk. He's very narcissistic. And that's part of the story in the the second film, especially in his relationship with Abigail, is they're like, you never listen to me. You're always, you know, pushing people around and lying to people to get what you want. And then but because of the like odd charisma that Nick Cage has where his performance choices and line reads are so out of left field, but he's also so committed to the bit. Like when he says, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence or in the second movie, I'm going to kidnap the president. When he <laughs> says this, it is the most serious. He is like a Shakespearean actor at the Globe Theater taking like committed to the bit and I just don't know if anyone else would be likable in this role because I don't like Benjamin Gates. I love Nick Cage. 
First, I was going to say, I completely agree with Landry. Like, one of my first thought was, who else could say I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence with a straight face and the audience not burst out laughing? Um, because I think it's hard-pressed to to think of an actor who wouldn't either be playing it so seriously that it comes across, you know, funny, or or who could get away with that at at all. Um, as you As you put it, he definitely commits to the role in a a unique way. I think another big part of it too is that like they kind of developed his backstory and his family's backstory in a way that like almost makes him is like trying to make him unlikable. So like in the I remember in the first movie Abigail's talking about like oh you're from this like crazy treasure hunting family. Like his family like has a like a, a reputation so to speak. Um and then like Nick Cage kind of just kind of, or Benjamin Franklin Gates, just kind of like nixes nix that. And like, she recognizes, uh, I, m- I remember she he was using a fake name, like Paul something with Abigail in the beginning of the first movie. And then when the second she heard his name, she was like, oh, you're from that family. Like, you guys are all crazy. Like, uh, what, what have you gotten me into? But then suddenly she also like starts to like him and then like goes along with this chick. So like she bought into it too. And I think that that really helped. They like tried to build him up as like, oh, these are, this is a crazy family that like has been going on about these conspiracies forever. And now like now Benjamin Franklin Gates is like, trying to this sounds like so overpowered but like trying to save his family's name and like doesn't want like wants to prove everyone right um which i guess is like a little bit of a hero arc <laughs> well it's interesting because again the the kind of other franchise you can think about similarly would be the Indiana Jones movies and in some ways and you again have that idea that this is kind of Yes, Indy's a professor, but this is like the family side hustle for a while in, in some ways. Um, but it's a very different, as the kids would say these days, vibe um, to the to the kind of two, two films with how they attempt to play it. And some of that, I think, is the era in which they were made. Some of it's probably the intended audience. But I mean, just the idea that you have a family of treasure hunters as your kind of starting premise in and of itself goes back to, it'd be very easy to just take this whole film as, you know, a goofy kids movie that was more of a joke. But at the time, like I said, it was seen as, you know, uh, it was, I feel like it was generally accepted as a good movie, as a fun movie. I mean, I also remember things like the National Archives having to come out and say that there's nothing on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Yes, like that's exactly that's a great example that's of just like what people they start, want you to think. Yeah. People started taking this movie so seriously. I remember like I couldn't I looked yesterday, like I tried to go back and find this article. I remember reading an article, it gotta be like five, ten years ago, about like the number of people that tried to find this uh the treasure from both movies like and i was like i was like yes like there are people that watch movies are like oh you know i think for a second oh is that real but there are people who like went out in real life looking for these things and like that's that's all like that all to show is like how well they executed this film is that like you know the national archives had to come out and say like you know this doesn't is it on the back of the declaration of independence but i think another important aspect is that like enough of the facts that are in the movie are correct 
So like the whole like the whole bit of like where the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are kept and how like the security around those documents like that is all like I went not 100 percent accurate, but it's accurate in the sense of like the locations of them. Like it's just relatable enough to make you like second guess whether or not these things are real. Um, and I think like that, that article I read was just like classic. It was like, I mean, yeah, conspiracy theorists that like are going out looking for these treasures. But like in the second movie, it's like it's in Mount Rushmore. Right. And there are like apparently people that went to Mount Rushmore like looking for this. Um, we call them super fans. And I, you know, I love a dedicated fan base, but like that's just like go home. <laughs> it, well, it's really interesting. There's there's actually a great like beat by beat breakdown of the fact and the fiction of the movies that I think was put out by a blog at Harvard that you can go, go to that uh, we'll link in the show notes that explains what is fact from the movie, what is fiction, what is sort of fiction-ish because there's a lot where it's like this is absolutely true. There's a lot that's completely false and there's a lot that is like, well, this is true, but we don't know or they had to kind of, you know, give it the old razzle dazzle for Hollywood. Um, I, I will also say one thing we were talking about there being part of a treasure hunting family, the Gates lineage. Um, if you go to the, the national, family business. It, yes. If you go to the <laughs> National Treasure Wikipedia page. Now, this is the National Treasure franchise Wikipedia page, not the <laughs> film, because there is a separate page for the franchise that includes both films, the brand new Disney Plus show and the series of young adult, I think children's or you know young readers books that has an entire 14 generation long family tree of the Gates oh family God. characters that are covered in these books. They have gone back to the 14th century with these characters all the way up until today. Like I can imagine, I mean, this is like, they're the Vanderbilts or the Kardashians. They've got nothing on the Gates family. They're going to be around. They've been around long before many of us, and they will be around long after us, I believe. To, to, to clarify, this is why when we were planning this podcast, we had to clarify with Landry how much of the expanded universe we were including in our conversation. Yes, the National Treasure Cinematic Universe. Watch out, Marvel. <laughs> Disney, well, I guess it's Disney too. They're they're cornering every single market here. One movie that we did also mention before that I think is really important in conversation with National Treasure is uh, the Da Vinci Code, or as I lovingly refer to it, the Da Vinci Code. They came out, I think, what, within the same year or maybe two years of, of each other, and I got to say, I never, I had not watched National Treasure until we were preparing for this podcast. I, you know, decided to it's try a classic. it. I thought it was goofy and cheesy and dumb at that. You know, I was like too cool for school at the time. And it was, it was just a load of fun. It's terrible in the best way. I really, I really enjoyed it. But the Da Vinci Code, for some reason, I ate it up. I was like, this is the like puzzle solving symbols thing that I could just, I ran with it. And I think it's because National Treasure was, like we said, it was understood it was, if not for kids, enjoyed by a more, you know, a younger audience, something to not take too seriously. Whereas when the Da Vinci Code, specifically the book came out, but soon after the movie, it was a culture, I mean, 
where I was growing up in Texas at the time, especially involved in evangelical circles, it was a cultural phenomenon and did not have a good reputation. It was sacrilege. It was Dan Brown, this obvious fiction author, claiming that Jesus had, you know, had a secret relationship with Mary Magdalene and this lineage of people that had the blood of Christ was still living amongst us today. And people lost their minds. And there's so much that these two films share. But like we said, the National Treasure franchise takes it just a bit less serious in what it's claiming. And and so I was curious about what you thought about the relation of these two films because I, I saw a lot of people in looking at sort of like looking back at the National Treasure series today, what people thought of it. And a lot of it was National Treasure is QAnon for kids. Like you have <laughs> you have this secret cabal of people in power who are hoarding this series of wealth and through a series of hidden messages they're trying to send to a few select people. They're trying to, you know, bring about, you know, a golden age of America and what it is. And, you know, it could be the storm as, you know, Q people see, or it could just be that the Freemasons had a lot of money or the city of gold, Cibola, whereas the Freemasons are also in the the Da Vinci Code, but they're trying to protect the knowledge of, you know, Jesus Christ's bloodline. So, where does the line get drawn between these two movies, and why do you think one has the reputation it does while the other was somehow safe? I think there are two reasons why people draw that line. First, I think National Treasure came out like a few months before Da Vinci Code, and I think like the proximity of these two movies in the sense that they're both like, they're not, I mean, Da Vinci Code isn't like treasure hunting, but they're both like the similar like conspiracy theory, clues, going on a hunt type um setup. And I think the the proximity definitely helps in terms of drawing the lines between the two. I also um was looking back at some of the reviews from Da Vinci Code and from National Treasure and some some people were claiming that National Treasure just basically like ripped off Da Vinci Code, like made it Da Vinci Code but for Americans. Um and I do think that's not entirely accurate. Um the vi- like the vibe the vibe of the two movies are completely different in my opinion. Um, just because like Da Vinci Code is handling like much heavier material, um, and the Da Vinci Code, the movie and the book are like a little bit more like dark and somber. And there's not like, it's not like comedy. Like there's definitely comedy and dry sarcasm in National Treasure that is not in the Da Vinci Code. Also, I think part of it too is that the Da Vinci Code also has um, it the sequel Angels and Demons, which like that movie is also pretty dark, and that that movie hadn't come out yet um, when it was just the Da Vinci Code and National Treasure. And I think there have been less comparisons after Angels and Demons came out, just because like it was more it was clearer that like Da Vinci Code was kind of doing its own thing. But I do see like the similarities in the sense of the the type of movie. Um, and also, I think that just speaks to kind of like what the audience was des- desiring in that time period of film. Um, both those movies, both the movies did did very well for themselves. Um, and I would I mean, if I was Tom Hanks, I'd be like a little upset if like a few months before they basically did like the American comedy version of the movie I was making. But like at the same time, like I think. 
the reason that the lines are drawn that way is like the Da Vinci Code's much more about like religion and like what Landry was saying and like the American version that's in National Treasure is like um, basically like an ode to the founding fathers and like what they left behind to us and like what we need to protect. So there are like similarities in like the trajectory of like what what's being like worshipped and paid attention to in those movies. I think another thing kind of building on what Natalie was saying at the end there is because this was steeped in American history for a larger American audience people probably felt more comfortable with the fictional elements of it. So like the, I can know that there's not, while we joked about the super fans and like the national archives having to come out and say, there's no secret map on the the back of the declaration of independence. People could, many people had been to these places. Many people knew kind of these historical stories. There's even, you know, a bit of that about what you think, you know, versus, you know, what actually happened kind of, in the movie. So I think people felt very comfortable with potentially, you know, if their kids like, is this real? Well, no, because I can tell you the real version of the American history there where with the Da Vinci code, I think some people saw it as a real challenge to their religious beliefs. That this is something to kind of Landry's point that was perceived as undermining some deeply held religious teachings. And because religion is so much based on faith, having the kind of hard physical evidence that you might have for certain historical elements would have been more difficult to produce. And so it could have could have had that conflict as well. I think at the same time, there is part of national treasure that's also just a like really good heist movie and in some ways fits almost in like the Ocean's Eleven vibe at at times too, particularly again, going back to that classic, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. I'm going to kidnap the president. And like part of me almost wants to put it more in those categories as opposed to the kind of Indiana Jones, Da Vinci Code type of thing as well. But I do think it's interesting that we really saw this moment in the early 2000s where puzzle solving was becoming a thing, Um, whether it was on the screen or, you know, with Sudoku and things like that getting really popular in that time. Like there seemed to be this general idea that that doing these kind of I remember the show Brain Games on TV for a while and whatnot like this. There really was this idea of, of trying to use your brain to figure out the the world around you was becoming very, very popular, not that it ever wasn't popular, but that there was this kind of idea of of puzzle solving as a activity and as a hobby and as something that was fun and cool as opposed to perhaps something, you know, that you just did on Sunday mornings with the New York Times crossword puzzle. I think there's also an element um, that we kind of, I glossed over a little bit that's similar in like the puzzle vein is that like, both these movies are like heavily laden with uh, conspiracy theories or, you know, challenging, not being able to challenge some of these facts and or uh, from what's fact and what's fiction. But I think there is an interesting and uh, there's been a lot of like writings and studies done on this is like how um, society views conspiracy theories like throughout time based on like what the like societal atmosphere is like. So like um, in this, like very similar to like the way that sci-fi is depicted in certain eras, like sometimes it's like utopian based off of like how society is like viewing their world um, and how the producers go on to make, you know, the films they want to watch. But I do think this early 2000s era too is when um, we started seeing more like conspiracy theories, like 
everyone's always always followed the like JF everyone's always followed the JFK like assassination conspiracy theories like that's always like been a big one um but I think it's been more it's been popularized into uh culture more so and I think like all of the conspiracy theories in national treasure like I'm okay like suspending disbelief for a little while and it doesn't make me feel like icky or weird um that I'm like oh you know I could I could I could suspend disbelief and think there's something on the back of Declaration of Independence that you need uh, Benjamin Franklin's glasses to see. Um, I'm okay thinking that. Whereas like some conspiracy theories that are like played out in pop culture now, you're like, oh, that's kind of uh, that's that's really bad and not uh, like acceptable. Um, and I think the conspiracy theories that are in um, are that not conspiracy theories. Some of the theories and uh, like challenging facts that are in Da Vinci Code are a little bit harder to swallow than the ones that are in National Treasure are like a little bit harder for like to suspend disbelief to enjoy the movie. Um, and I think like the Da Vinci Code on on its face was much more controversial um, than National Treasure was or ever will be. Well, and I would just add um, the the statistics I'm familiar with is is roughly 50 to 80 percent of Americans believe at least some conspiracy theory um, as of today. And so you know, I think the the kind of question of of are these movies encouraging belief in conspiracy theories or are they just a, a fun time can can be thrown out there. I personally think it's just a fun time, particularly looking back at 2004 when this movie came out and that, you know, it, we always have to be careful about reading too much into it um, now. But it's it's just a kind of fun fact to throw out there the prevalence of of these beliefs. I do think, too, that um, like a lot of times like we, we've talked Landry and I have talked about this a bunch is that like uh, so, sometimes it takes some time for culture to reflect into like our films. Um, so things that like people found interesting, not even they don't have to be correct, like just things you find like engaging in conversation and debatable and stuff um, then is reflected in the, you know, the TV shows we watch and the films we watch. Um, and I think that gained popularity, at least in the last like two decades or so. Yeah, it's. I think especially what we were talking about is the the claims that one movie is making are very distinct from the other one. And I think it's because especially when you look like in totality about like the conspiratorial claims that say The Da Vinci Code and National Treasure are both making, National Treasure actually makes a lot less conspiratorial claims about what the the truth within the world of the film is um it's you know it's like there's a map on the back of the declaration of independence sure there's hidden money somewhere that the founding fathers you know hid away and and we don't know where that is sure in the second film there's a book where the president has secrets that nobody else has access to or something like that and all of these are partially true and they don't go so far in the conspiracy as to say anything that would make them like so scandalous whereas the da vinci code is like there's a conspiracy this is one that you know a lot of people know about the freemasons leading to illuminati and stuff like that and then we're gonna go one step further and be like and jesus had a baby and everyone's like whoa and and so suddenly there is a there is a delineation there that national treasure funded by disney made for kids trying to be something else was not willing to cross. And so I I agree. I don't want to say that, you know, when people call it QAnon for kids, I think they're acknowledging that, like, it's for kids. 
it's, you know, for fun, while it might have sort of hints of what that conspiratorial thinking might be that could, you know, if fomented, lead someone, if if they make that their whole life and the way they think about the world, you know, could lead to maybe dangerous implications, you know, in general, like, like I was thinking that this movie really could have jump-started a generation of people my age into thinking about conspiracy theories, you know, at when it came out in the early 2000s and as they come into adulthood now, you know, could be QAnon people, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think there was enough there to that you can't just blame it on national treasure. It's It, it might have planted a seed, but plenty of other things watered that. What I do think is interesting and what I do think this film does that is, I wouldn't say sinister or you know malicious, but I do think is a little bit more irresponsible or what I wish it didn't do is subscribe to and propagate this great men of history narrative about the founding fathers. Um, the founding fathers did a lot of amazing things. They broke a lot of new ground and they established things that we should be, you know, grateful for and, and, and you know, set out on something that w- was really, really great and I think justified. But in doing so, both the film and the, the story that it tries to tell really do make it seem like they are the important people and what they did and we should canonize them or hold them up on a pedestal that, you know, these documents have not only historical value, but like a sacred sort of ritualistic value. And I think that's kind of tough. And this really came into vision for me in the second movie when the impetus for all of Gates's entire quest in the second movie is to sort of regain the respect for his grandfather's name within the culture. So it starts with him, you know, presenting at a press conference and say, or an academic conference saying, and my grandfather is really important to the Civil War. And Ed Harris comes out of here, great villain, up until the end for the second movie, says like, actually, he helped assassinate President Lincoln and I have this burnt piece of paper to prove it. And so from that point on, Nick Cage is like, I have to fix this. I have to make sure that people know my grandfather's name and it's well respected. And that is the entire drive from finding the lost city of gold, breaking into the Library of Congress, the Oval Office, Buckingham Palace, kidnapping the president of the United States and his secret book. Like, it's it's wild, the lengths that he goes to, and you don't really understand why until he's like, it's all about preserving my my grandfather and my family, the Gates family's name. And then you find out later, Ed Harris's character, Wilkinson or whatever, basically has the same motivation. He He was like, I held people at gunpoint. I'm a military contractor and and like a black market antiques dealer hunting for the city of gold so that my family, the Wilkinson name, will live on throughout history and people will respect it. And while I think there's nothing inherently wrong about wanting to be remembered and 
uh, you know, wanting to, you know, put a mark on the world that is positive rather than negative, the movie in telling the story about the founding fathers and then extending that into the Gates family and sort of them being subsumed into the national myth of the founding fathers makes it seem like doing it for the purpose of renown is more important than trying to protect some sort of ideal. And that's even present when Nick Cage gives the speech to Riley in front of the declaration in the first movie, when he quotes, he says, 180 years of searching out and three feet away. And he talks about, you know, the long train of abuses and usurpations. Uh, you, you know, we have to, it, we can provide new guards for the nation's future security, et cetera. And, and Riley asks him, I don't know what you mean. And he says, it means if there's something wrong, those who have the ability to take action have the responsibility to take action, which always kind of sat a little bit wrong with me in its intention because it's a little bit generalized, I think, by Nick Cage's character. And also, I don't know if it applies to stealing the Declaration of Independence and makes it seem like, well, if you're good and you're you're a great person, you have a responsibility to you get special privileges in society when in reality, the movie should be about the Declaration of Independence should be protected because it's an important thing for all Americans who, you know, respect these universal rights that we all share. And I don't think that's really driven home in the movie. I think so. I have I have two thoughts from from what you just said. The first thing is that, like, I think this movie does the classic, which I enjoy the film. I think it's fun. I think it's great. I think it does the classic like um, like worshiping of characters that are, are not characters, worshiping of like historical figures that is like the figures are much more nuanced than the film like leads you to believe. And like they're much more complicated. I mean, they're humans like all of us. Um, and I think the worshiping of the, uh, like Nick Cage is like worship of the founding fathers is like mildly unsettling. Also, I think like from a perspective, you mean Nicholas Cage, the character, not or Benjamin oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, the character, not Nicholas Cage, the actor. <laughs> yeah, that's just right. To, yeah. Just to clarify, yeah. <laughs> the huge founding um, fatherhead, huge yeah. founding fatherhead. <laughs> we, we don't know about his personal, uh, right, personal beliefs. <laughs> I mean, okay, so yeah, but thank you, thank you, Jennifer. Benjamin, Benjamin Gates is like worshiping of the founding fathers. Um, we all we and I do think it's like important that. We also recognize that, like, this movie, again, for kids, like, the, a lot of the history gets watered down and a lot of the, like, it just kind of gets more generalized. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking, too, like, we just kind of gloss over the fact that um, Benjamin, Ga uh, Benjamin Gates kind of um, breaks, like, I don't know how many federal laws. Um, and, like, he, like, <laughs> like I tried to count and I, I got lost. Um, and I think, like, again, suspending disbelief, it's part of the movie. Um, and I do love the little... <laughs> That in the beginning, he's like, well, I'm stealing the Declaration of Independence so someone else doesn't because he knew that Wilkinson was going to do it. I was like, I don't think that like that doesn't validate you like committing a, a crime because someone you want to stop someone else from doing it. So you're going to go do it. Um, so I think like it that definitely glosses over like that kind of stuff. But like Jennifer was saying earlier, like the basis of this is a heist movie. Um, and it executes a heist, the heist movie very well. Um, but like some of the things they do, you're like, okay, well, that's like, again, like breaking into Buckingham Palace. 
breaking into the Oval Office. Like all those things are just kind of glossed over, but you got to suspend disbelief in order for this movie to be entertaining. Um, And at the same time, you're like, okay, it's like kind of problematic that like now a bunch of kids think you can go like steal federal documents um, and like get away with it. But at the same time, it's for kids and got to suspend disbelief. But yeah, he committed uh, quite a few uh, federal crimes in in his in his day. Yeah, let's let's just hope we we have stronger cybersecurity protections than than this movie um, may yeah. may lead us to <laughs> to believe. Um, the, the thing I would add is I I'm a I'm more than willing to to be a little bit forgiving on the kind of great men moments in this movie for a couple of reasons. One of which is that it's it's using these as as characters rather than as as full historical figures. As we were talking about earlier, you know, some of the using the history is making it easier to follow versus a random treasure being hidden somewhere in the U.S. You know, you could make this just a kind of old-fashioned treasure island kind of story pretty pretty easily, and it would play out well. It's, it's, well, if it was something more along the lines of, you know, an American version of the crown or an American version, or, you know, looking at something like 1776, um, the the movie and the musical, you know, the John Adams miniseries, then I'm I'm more interested in the how have you fully explored the fact that this is a a complicated human being and that we can look at multiple facets of a human being and come to a determination of where we think that should place them in history versus something where, like I said, you're you're really using these more as as a character it could as much as you know it's Benjamin Franklin and and Paul Revere it could be you know the the ancient Roman gods and it would still play out in a, a kind of similar fashion right it's you know when taking it in totality of course you have to take all these things with a grain of salt it, it is just interesting to think about what these sort of really like subconscious things like and especially I don't think these were conscious moves by the writers of the film or the producers. It just goes to show that this idea of who the founding fathers were and what we should aspire to, you know, respect them for is so baked into the imagery and rituals and way that we have constructed history and teach history going back all the way to before the declaration was even signed which which i think is is kind of the the cool way of of looking at it not trying to say that national treasure is a problematic film it it's a problematic fave for sure <laughs> <laughs> do you guys think there's a presidential book of secrets <laughs> I, I could be convinced. And I feel like that's like, I think that's like a lot of the, the things that happen in these two movies is like, you're like, oh, do you think this good thing? I was like, I wouldn't be surprised, but I'm not going to like, this isn't the hill I'm going to die on, right? Um, <laughs> but like, I mean, there's certainly stuff that the president knows that no one else is going to know that gets passed on from president to president, whether it's like the letter that Obama left Trump or like, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's all kinds of things that like this is not conspiratorial. This is like this is like well known that from president to president, they talk to each other and there are conversations that happen that we don't see. Um, I kind of hope there is because there are certain things that only these people in history have have been in that moment and have experienced that moment. And whether it's 
you know, personal recollections or a here's how I handled this. Like, I kind of hope that there's some things yeah. that are being even if it's just, just like really when you take practical over any tips. job, you know, yeah. Okay, like, here's yeah. the coffee maker. Here's the bathroom <laughs> down the hall. Here's the presidential book of secrets. <laughs> Here's the plan. Here are the memos. Here's the plan where if the alien invasion happened, right? Like. This is how we assassinated JFK. Like it's it's all there. I do wonder. Too, are they gonna have to digitize it at some point? Like the first I mean, time surely, we get like right? a Gen Z. The first time we get a Gen Z president and they hand him a book and they're gonna be like, "How do you swipe on this?" Like, <laughs> and they're just gonna be like, "Here's an iPad." <laughs> the first iPad kid president. Or maybe that will be the. The uh, 15th version of National Treasure is the Gen Z president trying to interpret the cursive in the Book of Secrets. Yes. Yeah. Right. And that'll be, and they'll be like, I can rotate a PDF all day, but I mean, <laughs> I, I, how do I do this? What is, what is I mean, installing a program? <laughs> and it's kind of sad to think about though. Like in reality, if something like this, like it, obviously it's not called the book of secrets, but like if something like this were to exist there, like the reality is that like the information in it would be just so bland. <laughs> like <laughs> it would be like, it would be things that were not interesting at all. Like everyone's like looking for like, you know, the, like the alien attack plan and all that kind of stuff but like in reality it's probably like you know like i said this and i probably shouldn't have and like and no one ever remembers me saying it <laughs> remember to dial nine before you dial the number <laughs> <laughs> and there's got to be some presidents who were just like kind of boring like you get you get Lincoln's writings if, you know, if that were to exist and we'd be like, oh, wow, this is really interesting and, you know, amazing insights into his mind going on at this, you know, turning point in our nation's history. And then you get to like Garfield or, you know, any president, no hate on the Garfield fans out there. I know we've got, <laughs> we have a large contingent of Garfield stands <laughs> in our listenership. Um, but you get to him and I think like, people would be reading the book and be like, he's just kind of boring. Like he wrote like two things and it was like, hit the wrong button on the wiretap. You know, or Nixon's <laughs> like accidentally taped my taped over my favorite, you know, Watergate tape or something like that. <laughs> All these things. I, it is fun to think about though. Oh, it's, and that and that's the magic of it. It makes me wonder, what's National Treasure 3 gonna be about? What What secrets are they gonna play with? Uh, you know, because they're they've confirmed the third movie is actually happening. It was, you know, sort of in development hell for several years, but the script is being finished and has apparently been being sent to Cage so that he can sign off on it and all this. So I'm I'm just curious what what mysteries or secrets do you think uh because you know we it was it was the revolution in the beginning and now it's it was the civil war for the second movie. So what what is the turning point in the, the tumultuous history of America that they're going to be playing around for the, the third film? So so my guess, if, if I were a script writer, I would be going uh, Cold War and Space Race. Yeah. Space. There's so many conspiracy theories in, in, that, Moon in that time period. Yeah. There's, moon there's, landing for sure. Nick, wait, so Nick Cage wasn't on the moon? Nick Cage hasn't been to the moon. Yet. Nick Cage goes to the moon. <laughs> what if? What if it's that would like be epic. with a guest did, did, appearance by Elon Musk? I mean. Oh no! <laughs> and they're gonna—he's gonna be like, "I'm the one sending you to space." 
<laughs> oh my god! Because because we can't let NASA know, so we have to go the private route. And Jeff is busy, so we had to go to Elon so that he can. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Do you think maybe it's like there's a secret code on the flag that they left on the moon, and they have to send him to the moon and like grab the flag that we should Neil trademark Armstrong this. planted? We. <laughs> Pay us I for Disney this. send the royalties uh, to. Uh, <laughs> this will get published before then. So if uh, unless they've got proof that they wrote it beforehand, we are we got this. We're locked. I, I mean, so so I mean, my thought is this was a time where we saw huge technological advancements. It's also a time when we saw a lot of skepticisms and fears around certain technologies, particularly the early satellites. And as someone who focuses on technology policy. You know, we're we're seeing different debates today, but you to the what could people kind of relate to? Well, you're seeing some kind of similar skepticism of technologies in, in various forms, but you're also seeing periods of rapid discovery the same way that, you know, it took a lot of very sizable discoveries for us to, to land someone on the moon. You're seeing excitement around space and space exploration again, but you're also seeing a time when things like Chat GPT is making artificial intelligence um, creation a lot more accessible to the to the everyday person. Um, and you're seeing a time when, you know, what are I, I, I earlier I was kind of thinking about, you know, it's always interesting to me when I watch movies and TV shows from the the kind of 2000s or even the early 2010s, because it doesn't feel like that long ago, but just you ex- but you expect things like the clothes they wore, the cars they drive to look different. But the sheer way technology has changed from, you know, the idea of he can't just pull up Google Maps to help him get from point A to point B. He can't, you know, when, when you're stuck on a clue, you can't put in those keywords and and see what comes up in a in a search result or or whatever or or crowdsource to Twitter. I mean, imagine if Nicolas Cage could be like, I'm stuck, or or Benjamin Franklin Gates could be like, I'm stuck on this clue. Let me go to Reddit and see what the uh, subreddit of uh, the the National Treasure Expanded Universe has to say about how we should solve this clue. And not to mention the existing and sort of re-heightened tension between the United States and Russia at this point would be a really fertile ground to explore what kind of national secrets or things were hidden during the time of the Cold War uh, that could, you know, come up and and would be really interesting and and exciting for people. You know, what is what is Putin trying to do? Is he trying to send agents into the United States to break into Fort Knox or, you know, take over Cape Canaveral or something like that because there's a a time capsule hidden in a like a lunar module in the National Air and Space Museum or something like that. It also gets you too, some pretty cool destinations, um, yeah. <laughs> as, you, as you just mentioned. Space? <laughs> space? I think you know, the, air the space visuals. Museum, Florida? I mean, I just uh, actually just went to Kennedy Space Center for the first time in November, and uh, they could definitely shoot a National Treasure movie there. No no doubt about it. Um, but my the other thing I was just thinking, too, is um, what was going on that time with, like, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, like, everyone had that, like, fear that, like, the, like, on edge that we're all about to die. Um, and I think they could 
they could play around with some of those elements and that's in that similar time period as well um which like is kind of related to what landry just said about like the tensions with russia and other countries though people don't think we're about to die today at all no everyone's even keel we are chill chill as all get out no existential dread And oh, maybe it's something like there's a cache of hidden classified documents somewhere that Nick Cage has to has to find. It's like a side quest. There's treasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. <laughs>